Welcome everyone to a new year of the CNS Journal Club podcast and thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Kimberly Huang from the Department of Neurosurgery at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. My practice focuses on tumors and it is my honor today to moderate the discussion of a very interesting article in the newest edition of the Red Journal Hot Off the Press entitled Functional Reorganization of the Mesial Frontal Premotor Air Cortex in Patients with Supplementary Motor Area Seizures. Uh, the SMA is always a relatively hot topic in neurosurgery, and today we welcome Dr. Hong, the lead author, Dr. Van Guppel, our guest expert, and Dr. Domino, our resident co-host for the discussion. Dr. Hong, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, thank you. Um, good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm delighted to be here to talk about our work. So um, I'm a neurosurgeon at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and I do epilepsy surgery as part of my subsurgery practice. And this paper is a really interesting um, accumulation of really decades of data on interhemispheric mapping of, of these epilepsy patients. Um, and we got very interested in this topic because there is so little known about the SMA in human subjects. Um, so that was really what motivated our study. Great. Dr. Van Gumpel, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, Jamie Van Gumpel, Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Uh, skull base and epilepsy surgeon, and uh, very curious to uh, talk with Dr. Hong about this today. So I really appreciate the opportunity that CNS has presented for us tonight. Wonderful. Thank you. And Dr. Domino, would you finish off by introducing yourself? Yeah, I'm Joe Domino. I'm a PGY7 at the University of Kansas. I'll be um, doing an oncology fellowship at Moffitt next year, and um, I'm the you know, resident planner and co-host for this. So, you know, very excited to see um you know, what the discussion holds. Great, thank you. Dr. Hong, you mentioned the origins of the data. For our audience, could you give a brief review of the article, maybe some of the key findings and the major conclusions, please? Sure. Um, so this is a retrospective review um, of um, 25 patients uh, at our center that were implanted over a period of um, 25 years, actually. Um, and in each of these patients, they were studied for potential seizure onset zone in the SMA and, and frontal lobes. Um, and what we did was we sampled you know, everyone who had um, detailed mapping of the interhemispheric grid. We use a very large double-sided grid um, in many of these patients to investigate the side of their seizure onset. Um, and then um, we um, divided the patients into two groups, um, those who had seizure onset within the SMA um, and that was defined as someone who actually got treatment based on that finding. So a resection or neurostimulation in that region versus the patients who had seizure onset in areas outside of the SMA. Um, and so what this gave us um, was kind of a nice um, control group of sort of similarly implanted patients um, because we didn't know sort of a priori where their seizure onset zone was going to be. Um, that served as basically normal mapping controls. Um, and then we pooled data from these two cohorts and then compared um, basically the somatotopy of the SMA based on evoked responses during cortical mapping. Um, and what we ultimately discovered um, was that patients who have seizure onset within the SMA uh, tended to have altered localization of trunk and head responses. Um, and this was you know, done um, multiple comparisons just to ensure, you know, since we're working with 
fairly sparse data that this was a real result um, and not a consequence of sampling error or um, patient selection. Great, yeah, makes good sense. Um, I guess we'll start off with uh, questions from Dr. Van Gumpel, our expert guest. Well, I want to first make a comment prior to questions. So I know we have some prepared questions, but um, my first neurosurgical publication uh, was in the Red Journal about subdural grid implantations a long time ago. I think it was 2000 and um, I want to say eight. And mm -hmm. the <clears throat> Dr. Hong's group here is, I, I don't think that people understand how difficult of a group this is now because we do so much SEG monitoring now. So to have a unique group of 25 patients with inner hemisphere grids as large as these are, it's very, it's very uncommon and it's a really unique data set as she pointed out. So I wanted to highlight that because um, I think she just, you know, I, I think she's not giving, you know, Dartmouth enough credit for how difficult this is or Dr. Roberts and Dr. Hong. You know, honestly, um, it is an extremely unique data set. And it's exciting to see what they did with this because, you know, to put a, uh, these these large three by eight grids interhemispherically, and if anybody <clears throat> has played with these before, what these are is they're thicker than normal plastic and they're double-sided typically. And uh, they're not pliable like the old uh, subdural grids or if anybody here does intraoperative electrocorticography, they're not as pliable as those are um, and to uh, get these inserted, you know, with the amount of veins that you have to and, and to do with uh, with minimal complications as they have. Now, they didn't cover complications in this, but um, presumptively the patients were able to get mapped. So they must have done pretty well for a fair amount of time. So it's an impressive group of data. And I think that, um, again, just knowing what's happening with epilepsy surgery and knowing that people are using mostly SEG to map this type of information. I don't think we're going to have another population like this again. Um, but I'm going to go a little bit out of order. I'm going to ask a question because of the 25-year uh, period of time that was collected. So just to ask Dr. Hong, you know, how can we be reassured that the data collection was uniform across this group over 25 years with groups and physicians coming and going? because I think that is the essence of how you've done the data analysis. So I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, as you know, um, patient data is, you know, pretty fragile and it is uh, definitely liable to get purged, you know, like just as information systems turn over and as physicians turn over. Um, one thing that's been really nice is that during that period, we, we did have one primary surgeon doing all of the implants. Um, so that was Dave Roberts um, and his expertise. And so, um, you know, technically the surgeries and the approaches were very similar between the two groups, even though it was over a period of years. And um, the other uh, thing is that, you know, we are um, really committed to studying these patients and we have um, this very large database that we've accumulated and it's got to the point at one point when I was reviewing these patients that I was actually looking at VHS tapes like we really did do um, a lot you know to make sure that the data had good integrity and we were actually looking at real seizures and real mapping events um, so yeah we worked we worked hard at that because you're right it, it's an absolute problem especially in a retrospective you know review D Dr. Hong were the VHS tapes of the operation themselves or were they the SMA mapping could it you clarify was, um, yeah, the mapping and then the clipped seizures um, with the EEG. Um, yeah. 
So I think that's really important because it's hard to ensure data integrity over 25 years. And it sounds like, and knowing Dr. Roberts very well, I know he's not operating any longer that, you know, I wouldn't expect anything else, as well as Dr. Jobst, who's the corresponding author on this paper, as I yeah, recall. Yeah. And um, so she's uh, she's quite an amazing person. And I would I would expect none less from her, by the way. So, um, yeah, I agree so, completely. So, so the primary question I had, so <clears throat> the way I understand this paper is, you know, there's 25 patients that were accumulated. Uh, 13, I believe, had SMA onset seizures, 12 right. did not. And of the 12 that did not, they, actually, they ultimately, three of them didn't have a localized seizure. So they're a little bit of a varied group. Um, but the idea was that SMA mapping was done, in, interhemispheric SMA mapping was done. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that group, <clears throat> they're divided into two different groups, and you made centroids based on, you know, arm, trunk, leg, that kind of things, and you and you did a control of vision. Um, the data, and I and I guess my question is, with that low number, although I don't want to say low number because I want to also emphasize what I just said that this is a huge number that we're not going to see this again, at least without SEG data. So surface EEG is different obviously than SEG data. Yeah. How do we know if you didn't divide them in randomly groups? So for instance, there's cortical dysplasia groups. So you have five cortical dysplasia groups in the in the seizure onset in SMA and four in the non-SMA uh, onset group. How could, if we would have used those as separate groups, how much variance would we have seen in the centroids that you created? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, and I think when we first did the analysis, um, just taking all electrodes into consideration, um, we saw this discrepancy between the trunk mapping and head mapping with, with sort of the entire data set. And um, honestly, I was pretty skeptical and I thought, well, is this, is this real? Because yeah, you're right. You know, it could be, you know, small variations within an individual could, you know, sway the mapping data. Um, and we all know how, you know, mapping is, not quite as robust as you know, other sort of more objective measures sometimes. So, um, so we did two things to try and really ensure that these results were real, that these differences were not artifacts. So one thing we did um, was to do something called matching with replacement. So when we looked at basically the geometric distribution of the two groups, we found that in the SMA group, the electrodes, um, even though they had very good coverage of the interhemispheric areas, as a group, they tended to be shifted slightly more interior compared to the non-SMA. And, and that's probably because we had a hypothesis about a premotor onset and those electrodes maybe tended to be more anterior. Um, so what we did is in fact, um, we resampled the electrodes so that they had exactly the same anatomic and geometric distributions. Um, so we took all the responses in the SMA and then in the non-SMA set, we selected like the closest matched electrode um, with the response and the subgroup analysis with just those electrodes, um, which in theory would eliminate all of the sampling bias due to electrode distribution. Um, and within that smaller set of electrodes, we found that the you know, differences were still real. Um, and then the other thing we did is we did sort of a sensitivity analysis posing your exact question. So, you know, if the patient had a lesion on the MRI or if they had even um, pre-existing motor deficits, you know, could they have mapped before, you know, we even did the surgery, could they have had sort of intrinsic changes? 
Um, and what we did is we actually removed the electrodes that were from or sampled from those patients specifically and we ran our analysis um, each of those times. And then in both those instances, um, the trunk and header still remained, you know, statistically different between the two groups. Um, it's really difficult um, in some sense to um, know 100% for sure, because you can't, you know, in a retrospective review, you can't ensure all the electrodes are placed exactly the same way in every patient covering exactly the same cortical regions. Um, so, um, you know, we, we had to sort of think about ways of sort of manufacturing that from the existing data that we had. I, I will say if I, I, I did not review this article, however, if I would have reviewed this article, I would have asked you to look, do a subset analysis presented in the paper because you lumped right and left together. Yeah. And you also lumped in your focal cortical dysplasias, which we know causes reorganization. I would have asked for a specific subset centroid analysis for those two. Did you happen to do that separate from this analysis and look at it, did it alter the outcomes or did it influence, overly influence obviously, because what I guess what I'm thinking is in a dominant hemisphere, it's difficult because the SMA is so complicated to mm -hmm. distinguish what it does language-wise with what it does motor-wise. And I, I have a feeling just looking at this data that it influences and I can't shake it without seeing the data in the paper, right? Yes, um, so that's a great point. So we, we did combine sides, um, dominant, non-dominant sides um, in the analysis uh, just for power. Um, and, and that's because when you're um, looking at, you know, 51 versus 72, points, you know, even any filtering of that, you know, dramatically reduces the power of your analysis. So, but I think you're right. I think if we had more patients, we would absolutely do that subgroup analysis because that would be um, very interesting to see, you know, how much of the speech responses accounted for you know, upper, you know, facial or, or head movements. Um, with respect to your focal cortical dysplasia question, we, we did run um, our, you know, general linearized model with the focal cortical dysplasias removed. But we didn't do them. We didn't do the opposite analysis. We just we only did it with the focal cortical dysplasia patients. Um, and that's again a, a question of power. Just getting you know data points from five patients to compare. Um, we didn't feel like there was enough data to make a, a strong conclusion. See, I would have made a counter argument to that if you would have given me that as a reviewer. Mm -hmm. That you a power analysis is irrelevant here, right? Because you have such a small group of patients already that it would not matter. And you want to see if these groups are overly influencing what those centroids look like. And it, and I, I think I would have been pretty bullish about asking for those things because I'm, I'm still very curious. And I, th I think, you know, if you, if you still have the data, it'd be actually worth a separate paper to look at how those impacted this. All right. Yeah. That's a great suggestion. We'll, we'll see what we get. Um, yeah. And, and I, I have other questions, but I'll, I'll uh, hang on to them for a little while. Maybe we can move on to a different uh, uh, reviewer. No, great questions. Um, so uh, from Dr. Domino and myself, um, who are a little bit more tumor-focused people, SMA is certainly a continuous challenge for us as well, just like for um, our functional colleagues, both with counseling our patients and guiding our resections from an oncologic perspective, of course. Obviously, we don't place those interhemispheric grids that Dr. Van Gumbel was talking about during our oncologic resections. Maybe we should. 
So how do you think your findings about reorganization um, and such from your article might help um, oncology surgery as well, particularly, I think, with low-grade disease that might allow for more of this reorganization that you bring up, um, similar to what you might see potentially in epilepsy? Um, yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I think I was thinking about this, and um, I think you're right there. You know, it would be nice, and it would kind of be a fascinating separate study to to you know, math these in the tumor patients. Um, although I know SMA stimulation is difficult um, because of the you know, high high currents needed um, and, and the risk of interoperative seizure. Um, but um, it'd, be, it'd be curious to see whether like a reorganization prior to your tumor resection would predict, you know, a good outcome from, from SMA um, or good recovery. I think what I would take away from this is that there is a high degree of plasticity in this area. Um, and that that kind of opens the door to sort of think about, is there a way, you know, if you're gonna anticipate you're having a resection of this area, is there a way um, to um, leverage that plasticity maybe before surgery um, and think about, you know, if there's a way to either through therapy or maybe, you know, more, more work on sort of the mechanism, the plasticity for, you know, encouraging the brain in this region to be more plastic before you um, anticipate a resection of the tumor. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question. I think that the ultimate goal would be to be able to do some sort of predictive you know, modeling for outcomes um, after a resection, both in the functional and the oncologic world. Um, um, but you're also, I mean, I think you guys are, as tumor surgeons also, you know, your goals of surgery are really going to be slightly different. Um, and uh, it, yeah, it'll be an interesting discussion to think about modifying the extent of resection based on, on function. Um, can I, can I uh, couple on to Dr. Huang's uh, question? Because, you know, it is interesting to think of how a tumor surgeon addresses the SMA compared to what you did here, right? Mm -hmm. So you a tumor surgeon isn't going to go interhemispheric typically, although we do do, you know, motor mapping interhemispheric, not uncommonly, mm -hmm. right? But most of what the mapping is, is going to be exposed brain or the lateral cortex, which is a fair amount of the SMA. And what I was surprised to find in your data was when you just mapped interhemispherically, you found representation of all of motor functions and you reported that. You'd yeah. think that independently, you'd have some absence, which would be, you know, superficial, right? And I think you see that even so when we do mapping uh, with grids that are on the cortex, we do see similar representations here. So how do you tie those two together with what Dr. Huang was asking? <clears throat> so your question is, um... you're, you're, on, you're only mapping the hemispheric portion of the SMA, and you're neglecting a fair amount of it. Right, but you're finding all of the function there on your interhemispheric mapping. Uh, How yes. do you explain that? So it's not. Um, so we are finding all the functions, but it, it's not that they're all present for every single patient. So the um, the representative uh, somatotopy that we're we're modeling here is is a composite between different patients. Um, so it's true that within certain individual patients, you may not see every single function represented. Um, and we do see that. Um, but when you take you know, the group as a whole, we, we do see you know, arm, leg, trunk, and head responses you know, across the board in that hemispheric region. 
Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that you brought up the idea of, um, you know, rehab potentially, um, obviously a very hot topic, you know, navigated or a TMS potentially as a, uh, you know, a way to sort of rehab patients beforehand. So I think in generally recovery after surgery in the SMA region um, is quite heterogeneous. I know it's difficult for me to sometimes counsel my patients, aside from the fact you're likely to have SMA, what it might look like, and everyone's so different. Do you think your work might be able to help us better counsel our patients about SMA and recovery since it is so different across all of our patients we treat, um, depending? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've I've personally taken from reviewing all the, the patients you know, and looking at their data is that um, there is inherent variability. Um, and, and maybe that's, you know, sampling, you know, maybe it's because we don't have like perfect coverage all the time in every patient. And if we did, we would, that would be the perfect study, right? If I, if I, I could do this, you know, now moving forward and, and have all the, um, the benefits of having done the retrospective look. Um, but I think um, one thing I would say about recovery, one thing I would love to do is if we could go ahead, you know, prospectively follow these patients, it'd be great to see if an individual sort of, we could, if we could come up with an, a degree or some sort of quantitative measurement of how greatly they've revamped, um, or maybe some idea of, you know, how intrinsically plastic this area of their specific brain is at the individual level. It'd be nice to know, um, prospectively looking at their, their functional outcomes, what happens after the resection. And, we just didn't have in this data set um, enough to do that. Um, but um, you know, this is a question that might be answered in a collaborative fashion across different institutions potentially if we have you know, enough patients or we could start to build you know, really a, a big atlas of NAFT responses and, um, and then follow them and look at their outcomes. Um, I think it's reasonable to hypothesize that if you have, you know, a greater degree of remapping prior to your resection, whether that's for epilepsy or for surgery or for, sorry, tumors, um, maybe you do do better. Like maybe you do have, you know, better recovery or faster recovery. Yeah, I think along those lines, um, you know, obviously responsive neurostimulation is, is, you know, more at the fore and we're doing more of that. So I don't, I don't know if you've, you know, have those patients or that, or any sort of, you know, kind of sense whether, you know, if, if we get that closed loop feedback, um, you know, that our neurologists are looking at a lot, you know, does, does it change, you know, are they seeing changes? And, you know, obviously we have to, you, you're not having the ability to map it as well, but do you see, you know, kinds of changes in, in the, the data that we're getting back from, from these patients? And I guess, especially if you're thinking about SMA region, please. Um, yeah, so we have a fairly small experience with responsive neurostimulation in the SMA. I don't know, um, Dr. Van Gompel, whether you, you know, have, have more to say about this, but um, in, in the couple of patients, like, you know, I think there was like just three that we did um, an SMA-targeted stimulation um, with the RNS. Um, we haven't really seen a big change in, in motor function or, or really even in the efficacy of the simulation. So I, I don't, I guess it's a very small number, so I can't say anything conclusively, but right now I, I don't, I don't think that, that there is a change related to stimulation, but I don't know that for sure. You know, Dr. Hong, I think it's a tough question. So what Dr. Domino was saying, you know, what is truly functioning? You don't address that in this paper, right? So you don't look at the SMA resection cohort um, because a lot of them went on to surgery 
And it shows how difficult of a patient population this is. Not a lot of were seizure-free after, but there was a lot that improved. Right. But the question, you know, and this was gets into Dr. Wong's question is, you know, if you map the centroid and you resect it, what happens, right? What, and we don't know that. And I think, again, you know, that's what's so fascinating about research. And this is such a unique cohort that I, that would be another. <laughs> so we said another paper for looking at different cohorts, but that would be another really interesting thing to know, like that you map this pre-op, you resected it, because there are a lot of surgeons that may put responsive neurostimulation or something. We do uh, cortical subthreshold stimulation, but however it is that you do it, you know, they may say that's function. And, you know, and, and Dr. Huang says, well, we, t- we cut that out all the time. They spent half the patients don't have any problems and then the other half go to rehab and they're great two months later. Right. So I don't know. I think, I think it'd be really cool to see in that population and those that were resected, what ended up happening with your mapping, if there was removed and what happened to those patients with that function. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, we should, we should look at it. Lots of future papers out of this, Dr. Hong. <laughs> I'm going to take notes. I'm like writing this all down. See my poor residents every time <laughs> they have a project with me, it's a never ending project. Uh, well, wonderful. Any further questions from our group? No, thank you so much. Uh, this was, this is great. Great. I- I, I do want to just uh, just congratulate Dr. Hong. I think it's a really good paper, and it's um, you know it, it shows the quality of work that goes into the Red Journal, and uh, there's a lot of that can be done with this type of information. But it's such a unique patient population. I wouldn't let go of it because um, I don't think people are going to do this again. It's such a hard surgery to do, and um, we will do this with SEG, but it's not the same. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as this is a very unique population. I congratulate you and, and Barbara and and, and um, obviously David and, and the whole group at Dartmouth for such phenomenal work. Thank you. Appreciate that and appreciate the encouragement. Um, yeah, this this has been a, a very interesting experience just reviewing all of this data and and it's 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 hard data to work with in some ways, but it's very it's very rich as you as you point out. So there, yeah, certainly there's more to learn. Wonderful. Well, I think we are nearing the end of our time. I would like to thank, of course, our excellent panel and guests for their stimulating discussion, and it certainly has given me a lot to think about. Thanks to our loyal listeners for continuing to support the podcast. Uh, We hope you learned something new today in your practice. And uh, remember, you can obtain 1.5 CME, which is complimentary to all CNS members. The link to the CME activity is available in the online education catalog at cns.org. We'll see you all next month.